Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultran, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoy today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe and give us a star rating. Hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Libby Selno to the What About Death podcast. Dr. Salno is a palliative care physician and consultant in London in the UK, who has been involved in leading and developing new approaches to end-of-life care for the past two decades. Dr. Salno was also the first author of the Lancet Commission called The Value of Death, Bringing Death Back into Life, which was published in 2022. And I am so pleased that this is what we will be talking about today. So welcome, Dr. Salno, to the What About Death podcast. Hi, it's great to be here today. We're talking today about the Lancet Commission. So what was the impetus for this commission for the Lancet in the first instance? So there'd been a lot of conversations, reflections about what it was like to die in the 21st century. And one of the key issues that kept coming up was that death had been over-medicalized. And we had kind of discussed this with different people. And so there came up an idea to say, well, actually, let's examine this in more detail. So the editor of The Lancet was talking with Richard Horton, was talking with uh, my co-author Richard Smith one day and said, well, let's do a commission on it. You know, has death been over-medicalized? Is that what the problem is? So that was the real impetus to say, well, let's see whether that is something that when we explore it is really happening. And of course, when we did then bring a commission together and explore it uh, over four or five years, we found that actually the answer is much more complicated than that. As it always is. (laughs) All right. So now there are many authors or many contributors to this particular paper. So what are their backgrounds? What brought them together? Well, we wanted for it to be global in its reach, in its perspective, in its remit. And we wanted it to go beyond the Palliative Care Commission. So there'd been the Lancet Commission into Access to Pain Relief and Palliative Care, which had been published a few years before. And that covered a great deal of important topics around access to opioids, access to the palliative care approach, essential medications list, and also serious health-related suffering. They introduced that concept. But we wanted this to be broader and around death in its societal, philosophical, spiritual, economic, religious, you know, relational aspects, not just the kind of healthcare aspects. So Richard Smith actually pulled together the commissioners and tried to be as broad and wide. So we had novelists, philosophers, religious leaders, alongside people working in oncology, general medics. So we wanted to kind of have a very broad idea of what death dying and grieving meant today. And it's not just an interesting group of people, but it's actually quite an exciting group of people to bring together to do this paper. 
Absolutely. And some of the discussions were so interesting and really wide ranging. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we had as we approached the kind of knitting together of all the different threads and strands that we'd unearthed and explored during the Commission's lifetime It was then trying to work out how to pull it into a coherent document that had a thread, that had a narrative and that spoke to multiple different people because we had and different audiences because we've gone deep into very, very different areas, philosophy, into the economics. And we wanted to ensure that it didn't read like a series of separate chapters that had no connection. So one of the big challenges was pulling together this huge wealth of reflection, some new empirical knowledge, and pulling together of existing knowledge in a way that spoke coherently. I think that's the key word that we were trying to bring, a kind of sense of coherence to that final report. It's actually not only just an interesting document, but it's really quite beautiful in how it's presented and the things that you touch on. And unfortunately, we haven't got enough time to talk about everything. I wish I did. But one of the things that I found really interesting was where the report talks about a realistic utopia. Mm. I'm really interested to know what you mean by this and why you think it's important to have this in the context of dying and death, loss and grief. Well, we were challenged by the editorial team at The Lancet to not only rehearse, trace and understand the challenges of contemporary death, dying, loss and care. We, we, and we do that at the, in the first part of the report, you know, really understanding what's it like to die in the 21st century? How has it changed? What influences? How is it different for different people, different countries, different settings? So we explored all of that. But we were challenged to look to the future, really, in a more hopeful and intentional way and to think, how could this be different? How could we change this? And that's where I think the report, for me, uh, reached its most exciting point, because we were challenged to think, well, this doesn't have to be the status quo that we sit with, that we exist. And we'll come on to systems, I'm sure. But the idea of actually how we die, care, grieve, how we understand death is influenced by the broader world and the systems within which we exist. And they're constantly changing. So even if we do nothing, how people die in 30 years, in five years, 30 years, 50 years, will we'll change. And so the realistic utopia is really trying to grasp onto that idea of change and to be more intentional and more proactive rather than passive or reactive to that. Say, well, how could we change it? And so the first step in thinking about how we could change it is to put a vision, a radical vision of how things could be different, how we would like them to be. So that's where that kind of intentionality comes in and say, well, how would we want these times? Understanding they are universal, they are will happen to everyone, they will happen to, they are a part of society. But understanding and acknowledging that, how could we make them the best they could be? And so that's where the realistic utopia came in. And we borrowed that concept from a philosopher, a US philosopher called John Rawls. He had had this idea of a realistic utopia in society. And it's a radical vision of how the future could be. But rather than being utopian in its achievement that would not be possible, it's based on premises and ideas that are achievable if we work together, if we brought led to different shifts in societies. And so we then set about coming up with the principles of this new realistic utopia. What would it look like? What would we need to do? What would people need to pull together to make this happen? And so after, as you can imagine, much 
debate, <laughs> refinement, reflection, we came up with these, these five principles. They're broad, high-level ones, relatively abstract, because we want them to be interpreted. We wanted them to be relevant and resonate with everyone globally, which is <laughs> not an easy task in itself, but to be broad. And then people can take and understand them and interpret them in different families, in different communities, in different countries, in different societies. So this idea of relational, the importance of relationships, networks, the importance of talking and understanding that acknowledging these events are universal, all of those different components we wanted then for people to take and make sense of in their own settings. You also talk about death systems. First of all, what are they? How do we recognise them and how do they develop? So we we came across this idea and author Robert Kastenbaum had come up with the idea or the concept to find death systems back in the 70s, but the concept hadn't really gained much traction. It hadn't really been reflected on much beyond a few academic papers. And as I mentioned, we were trying to kind of knit together all the multiple strands and influences that we could see determine how, where, why people die, the experiences, what people die of, how and where. We realised that actually it wasn't just one influence. It wasn't just, say, that the death death systems, medical systems were kind of over-medicalising death. There were so many different components. And so we came across uh, Robert Kastenbaum's concept of death systems. And this allowed us to begin knitting together these multiple influences and determinants that we could see were so important. So looking at societal influences, obviously health and social care influences, but also the philosophical, the political, and some of the structural determinants that influence how people die. So death systems are the multiple different impacts, influences that determine how, where and why people die and how death is understood and managed in a society. And death systems will be different for everyone. Different societies, communities, countries will have different death systems. But the key thing to understand is that they exist. And sometimes they're implicit, we may not see, but sometimes they're very explicit when it's things like laws and policies and procedures that determine how and where people will die. It's amazing the factors that do contribute to our perception and experience of dying and death. So did you identify that there are certain main systems that exist today that are consistent? Hmm. And I think one of the main, you know, health, health and social care now is the dominant context where people encounter death, dying and loss, not so much grieving and bereavement. And so what we were saying is actually they've become too dominant and that's had a huge impact on how we experience death and dying, the outcomes. And, you know, healthcare, it's, it's a double-edged sword because we see over the, say, the past 50 years, significant increases in life expectancy, not entirely in healthy life expectancy, but certainly in the number of years people are living and the age people are dying and many conditions that were previously fatal are being managed either through preventative healthcare or disease management. So, you know, in some ways, healthcare is, there's been a huge success really over the past decades. But what we see is that increasingly death has become taken into healthcare. And as that's assumed a much bigger role, a more powerful role, it's really undermined and minimised a lot of the other parts of the system that are needed to experience a good death, if we use that term. And so, for example, communities, the role of families, people don't feel confident to 
manage these times. They're very unfamiliar. People often don't get to see someone and care for someone until they're much older and later in life, if at all. And so that kind of sense of confidence, skill, knowledge is being lost by communities as healthcare is taking over. And the reality is people don't wish to be in hospital often at these times and healthcare services don't don't wish to have people dying in hospitals, but somehow the system's not working. And we looked at kind of the idea of slight reinforcing loops where actually it's becoming a, a vicious cycle. And so how we begin shifting that is one of the key challenges, I think, going forwards. Have you reflected on this since COVID? Because COVID's a really good example of how the medical model overtook. I mean, so many people were not given the opportunity to be with their loved ones as they died because they were in hospital or they were isolated. How do you think that sort of situation has contributed to this medical system that we seem to have fallen under? Mm, And you're absolutely right. You know, COVID shone a lens on so many things that were happening kind of on a, on a small level or that we hadn't realised. And it made it so obvious the the challenges and the kind of medical model of dying, you're absolutely right, was exemplified so clearly with those shocking scenes of people who were in intensive care with unable to say goodbye to their loved ones and people being called on over the phone so they could kind of say goodbye and only being with people even the healthcare professionals so gloved and gowned that you couldn't see who they were or any connection and so that really demonstrates that kind of one extreme really of an over medicalized death where you have no real human connection you're in a kind of sterile environment with machines only and the trauma of that both for, for the people who were left behind but also as a society I think is really significant and we were writing the commission and reflecting on this through COVID and we actually thought during COVID, uh, we had one of our commissioner meetings at quite near the beginning of the pandemic when we were just beginning to understand the reality. We thought about the title and we can maybe come on to that, The Value of Death. And we just thought we can't write this. This is something that we too distressing, seeing the scenes that we were seeing on the media globally. But then as we discussed this more deeply, we thought actually, no, we realised this this makes this even more important. And actually, we needed to be brave to to publish this because everything you could see so many things that were going wrong because we were not able to really think about prioritizing and valuing death in its sense, acknowledging that it's sad, hugely distressing and loss is so painful, but that it is a part of our human condition and our existence. And actually by devaluing death or or trying to manage it and not understanding that as and when it comes, it needs to be given the right care, and connection and and the other parts that we know are so important at that time by not doing that we're actually causing more suffering and more distress unwittingly so we realized actually during covid it made the need for this you know the mandate even stronger what has contributed to the medicalization of death how come it's become the main Hmm. system we spent a long time reflecting on this and there's a really interesting book by an author called Lynn Loughland at The Craft of Dying which is traces kind of what has happened to how we die over recent generations and we included a table from this book in the report and it looks at dying pre-1950s to dying today and looking at the differences over recent generations and one of the things has been medicine, it's, it's almost been a victim of its own success. It has this sense that actually, whether this is something that's said explicitly or, or implicitly, 
there's newspaper headlines all the time of, you know, the next cure for dementia or for heart disease or for cancer. And there have been huge strides made in uh, managing many of these conditions. But it's led to a sense that, that there will always be one more treatment. There will always be one more course of antibiotics or course of chemotherapy or something that can be done. And that medicine does promote this idea that one day all conditions will be managed or cured and in that is a very implicit sense that death will somehow be beaten and death will somehow be overcome and it's really come to be viewed as as a failure rather than as a natural part of all our lives so this idea of death as failure in medicine as always having one more possibility to manage it becomes kind of embedded in society and we took many different stories that we heard from people globally about the value of life and the value of showing someone you know your family members that you really care is in more medical treatment so pushing for more treatment and and not stopping and that actually giving up suggests that you don't you don't care and you're not expressing that value and how hard that is to overcome now and so and as I mentioned then the more healthcare the bigger role it assumes, the smaller role there is for the kind of spiritual, the relational, the family, the community role within that. And it becomes self-perpetuating. People feel that death must be managed then by doctors and nurses. And I think the tricky thing also when you look at what's happening within the healthcare system around death and dying is that often people feel very uncomfortable. Doctors, nurses, family members, patients, people find it very difficult to have these conversations when things are difficult and when time is short and it seems you know, there are no more treatments that's quite hard for people for the healthcare to acknowledge or for people to hear so often those conversations remain unhad and unsaid so that no one quite knows what's happening and people then die quite suddenly without having had those conversations which further increases the fear and the sense of a loss of control at these times. So what systems did you find or do you feel as helpful systems that we can utilise and continue? And what sort of systems did you discover that that you feel from this research that we could either radically change, perhaps, or in fact, be abolished? So we talk about this sense of balance in systems. And that's what we wanted to really convey throughout the report. And we don't want to get rid of and we can't get rid of healthcare. You know, healthcare is a good and we need to continue that. And there's huge issues with access for many people globally, even to access basic universal health coverage, good preventative care or, pal- or basic palliative care. So it's not a sense of globally, we say we want less healthcare. And what we really understood is that at the moment, some people are having too much healthcare and are needing to write advanced directives to prevent them going into intensive care or prevent them having treatments that they don't wish to have, whilst other people are struggling to access basic healthcare, basic palliative care. It's not that we need to say healthcare needs to step back. In some places, people need much more healthcare. And this kind of paradox we really struggled with. So it's hard to make universal decisions or claims. But what we do know is that healthcare systems are unbalanced and death, dying and, and grieving systems are unbalanced. And so what we need to do is re is is shift that balance and allow healthcare the role it needs. And we need to include that, of course, and you know, even access, even when dying, access to analgesia, to pain relief, to good skincare, etc. That's essential. And that's something that health and social care has a role in. But what we need to do is to understand how to bring back and promote the role 
of all these other influences in the system, these multitude of different influences that we know are essential? How can we promote that and then hear that their voices much more, uh, much loud, more loudly, and and get them to kind of balance the overarching uh, and overreaching role of healthcare? And that's where we came across the concept of death literacy that is really gaining a lot of understanding and interest behind it, and it's. A similar concept to health literacy, where you have the knowledge, the the skills, the confidence to make decisions around your healthcare or the healthcare of those you're caring for. The same with death literacy. It's about how you develop the skills, the knowledge and confidence to manage, understand and support death, dying and grieving. So a lot of the principles of the realistic utopia are aimed to tackle this unbalanced, current unbalanced nature of death, dying and grieving systems. And then many of the recommendations point to how we could begin to shift that balance and rebalance that. So how do we go about that? How do we go about reconstructing or getting that balance in terms of understanding the relationship between life and death? So the principles of the realistic utopia kind of helped us that's why we try to kind of set out what the first steps would be and so some of the key ones are around understanding the importance of relationships and how can we bring that into wherever people are dying caring and grieving whether that's hospital the home or a hospice or anywhere else and understanding the role of networks so often when people are have a terminal illness and have um, are aware that time is short Often it mobilizes a whole set of healthcare priorities and people are out working. And what we need to understand then is actually that network needs to be much broader. There needs to be an acknowledgement of the importance of the family members, the broader community and of their strength and capacity, not only the role of the healthcare providers and social care providers. So how can we begin actively building those networks? And that's, for example, examples of compassionate communities that have developed over the past couple of decades are focused on really building those networks, that skill, and essentially building that death literacy in communities around them. One of the other principles is around the kind of silence that we see in society on death and dying, and knowing that For example, a lot of the policies around COVID that came out or um, lots of policies on healthy ageing, for example, they just don't mention death dying at all. And we looked at the social determinants of health literature, which is so important for understanding how health is created and the social determinants of death and dying are just the same. But we saw that actually the social determinants of health literature ends at retirement There's no acknowledgement of death and dying being universal events that will affect us all and that have huge impacts on our future, the future health of those left behind, for example. So, again, this kind of silence on death and dying is often in policies. It's included as a subsection under palliative care, which may be under non-communicable diseases. And actually, we need to bring this out. Death and dying need to be acknowledged as universal events and as societal events, not as healthcare events. So we produced this, the, the realistic utopia as these five broad principles. And then within the recommendations, we detail all policies must be health literate. We must all be aware of, oh, sorry, all policies must be death literate. We must look at whenever anyone is 
approach to the end of life, we must understand their network. How can we build the network around them? How can we improve death literacy for communities? How can we improve the conversations that need to take place in outpatients departments or on hospital wards that we know are not taking place? So we come up with a series of different recommendations that then sit under the realistic utopia that give people practical examples of how to begin working towards this in their settings. So what do you think is behind the silence? Because it's not just about old age and death, is it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the, it is just a real aversion to talking about death. Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that loss and sadness towards loss is, is difficult, upsetting, and people wish to avoid it. And that's, that's okay. You know, that's part, again, of our human condition. It's painful. And so we wish to protect ourselves and others against this loss. But I think as it's become kind of almost sequestered and, and hidden within institutions, that gives you a kind of protection against, against death and dying that you almost we almost don't see it now. So it becomes very unfamiliar. And I think that kind of wish to protect ourselves against the pain and, and, and prevent that loss then also the fact that very often we don't see that at all if it's if death takes place in a nursing home or in a in a hospital it further protects but also makes it less familiar and i think it increases the fear and we um had on our commission Sheldon Solomon who has written a lot about death anxiety and reflecting on how that is influenced. And death anxiety is a really interesting concept, huge amount of writing and critique around what it means. But there's no doubt that talking about death changes people's perceptions, perspectives, um, worldviews. And it can be very challenging because understanding and really accepting our own mortality and the mortality of those we love is a hugely difficult and very painful exercise to to undertake. And so much of art, music, literature has been trying to make sense of our mortality. So we understand that and we're not trying to, with the term value, we're not trying to say that death is a, is a good thing that we're wanting people to look at positively, although at times it can be, but it's understanding that it's distressing, loss is painful and sad, but that it's natural and it's part of our, our lives, it's part of our condition and that by denying it, by hiding it, by withdrawing from it, by devaluing it, it increases that suffering. And that's our core argument, that we need to revalue death by bringing it back into life and understanding its role, its sadness, but recognising that and not withdrawing from it and, and building systems around, balance systems that can support us to have that in our society and for it then not to become a bigger fear. Because I really feel that by understanding, giving, uh, recognising, giving death its place within our society, that does mitigate and reduce the pain and suffering that we're seeing at the moment. It's interesting because I think so often people see life and death as mutually exclusive, whereas you can't have one without the other. What this idea of valuing death, which I think is really nice thing to just ponder, you know, even to just think about. What sort of hurdles do you think there are to encouraging society to value death? I think they are they are many and significant. And I think one of the, I guess the key things really is around how we view death. And when we looked at some of the levers for systems change in our work, 
And there's been a lot of work looking at how you shift systems. Uh, Danella Meadows has written a, a series of different lever points. And one of the most profound points for influencing, for changing systems of influencing how people feel is, is shifting mindsets and paradigms. And I think that's without a doubt be the most powerful but how you set about doing that, there are then a series of multiple series of levers underneath that and shifting the goals of systems, shifting how information is accessed, etc. And so and there's a table actually we include, which I think is my most favorite part really of the report. And that is looking at these different levers for change and listing them in a descending order of power to change systems and giving examples of where this is already happening around the world. And I think that's the most powerful part of the whole report. It, this is already happening. People are already taking this action to shift systems to regain that balance. But they're small, they're isolated, they're in one area, and they're, you know, they're not being taken up collectively. But I think the biggest thing is to begin shifting our mindsets and to understand that death is natural. We cannot avoid it by not talking about it. We cannot avoid it by ignoring it. And so understanding that it doesn't sit within palliative care. Palliative care doesn't own death and dying, no more than healthcare owns it. And understanding all of our role within supporting kind of healthy attitudes, open discussions, support at the end of life, support when people are grieving. So all of us really need to understand that and and societies I guess to become death literate to to bring that term back in again how do we do that how do we motivate people to talk about the topic of death and life and grief what do we need to do to to stimulate the interest outside of what about death podcast, of course? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. So there's so much discussion around, you know, talking about death and dying. And I think often, you know, there's, there's death cafes and there's death festivals and all sorts of movements that have, you know, aimed to kind of start the conversation. And I think often the conversation, it can be quite hard just to kind of sit down and begin talking about it. There's some really interesting examples of projects using the term so often there's a wide acknowledgement of the fact that we all need to understand life support basic life support so if someone has a heart attack or becomes unconscious we all know we need to call for an ambulance or start basic life support etc <clears throat> and that's kind of taught and across schools and first responders etc there's been lots of interest thinking how could we have a similar rather than first aid last aid and that's a project that's been developed in a lot of European countries and adapted around the world to say this is these are core skills that all of us need a bit like life support or a bit like other core skills in society and so there's been some really interesting projects where these courses are run and I think the key thing is often there's a great deal of sadness these are not kind of it's they're not morbid they're not depressing but it's about you as a person in society understanding your role and these things being quite empowering similarly in schools how we begin to shift mindsets and, and narratives around death and dying from an early age to say it's okay if someone is bereaved to talk to them ask them how they are and to think about how you could support them it's lots of broad broad ideas of shifting it's not just kind of sitting down and writing an advanced care plan or having a serious discussion about death with your family and friends, because that's that's understandably often quite hard to do and people find that quite hard. But how can we find different ways in society to begin shifting that? And that also needs to take place within hospitals. So we looked at a lot of intensive care units around the world, in different countries where often aren't ceilings of treatment. So decisions not to say 
move to put someone onto a ventilator or other things like that. And so there's no way of having that conversation within families, within a healthcare team, with a clear policy or guideline behind it. And often it's related, it's then confused with euthanasia, people don't want to have that treatment stopped, etc. So again, that's about a different approach, putting a framework in to say, this is how we set a ceiling of treatment, withholding, withdrawing treatments in a kind of a legal to support the healthcare team to be making decisions around that. So it's multiple different ways in, we need to start shifting the current systems. And that will be through policy levers, that will be through education in school that will be through podcasts through media through representations of death and dying as normal and Catherine Mannix talks a lot about everyday dying and ordinary dying actions around his death are taboo well in some ways it's everywhere it's on the front page of every newspaper it's a theme for tv movies etc but not normal everyday dying which is someone dying from dementia in the front room with a, a nurse popping in to support them in a hospital bed. You know, that's often the reality of dying in the future and dying today. But that there's no space for that in the media. People don't recognise that as a set of experiences. So when you suddenly come to face that, it's very hard. You don't have a kind of script. You haven't seen it before. So we need to start representing and discussing these forms of ordinary contemporary dying in society so that people recognize them when that time comes in their lives. It's like there's a big difference between the system component where you're talking about policies and those sorts of things versus just connection and relationship. It's quite a complex issue really isn't it valuing death (laughs) absolutely and I think we need to reach out across different systems and this is and across different parts of the system and that's one of the things I mean that really holds for healthcare professionals who are holding a great deal of that power if you were in in the system but actually often people who are really supporting death and dying shifting attitudes or promoting care are not having conversations with other people across there. So, you know, the role of funeral directors or in some cases, some countries, it's the police are called when someone dies at home, hospital, palliative care services, but also kind of religious leaders, what's happening in schools. And often everything is very separated and people aren't aware of their role in this broader death system, If you know, now using that term. So I think a lot of the important part first is reaching across these systems to say, look, we're all involved in this. How can we work together to make this better? And that's where it comes down to relationships, not only around the person who's dying or caring or grieving, which is essential and a really core part, but also across systems and to say, okay, we're all actually in this together. We all have a role within this system, making those systems explicit and then making those relationships that exist within them that currently you know, people are not talking across to make them clearer. And I think that would really help to begin having more of a thoughtful and connected response to it, along with, as you mentioned, the broader kind of policy changes, educational changes, those kind of other ones that we, we go through in, in our recommendations. So what's next for you? Use this uh, term, bringing death back into life, which I also really like. What's next for you in terms of trying to continue this process of bringing death back into life? Well, we always said that the easy part was writing the report, even though it didn't feel like that over those four years. But we wanted to get that out and published and shared and read and reflected on and thought about by as many people as possible. And now the next phase is to begin putting some of this into practice. 
So we are building a a post-publication plan now. We're building a website. We are looking at how we can get some funding to start putting some of this into practice. I'd like to see examples of the realistic utopia being understood and put into practice around the world. I want to start sharing some of the ideas in much more detail that happens to, to capture what's already happening. So we're working on that over the next few months and we'll be then sharing that website when it goes live where people can join because we need to now move much beyond our commissioner team and connect with people who are working on this already and who would like to start working on this throughout the world so it's a kind of watch this space we're just getting that ready and I can share that website link with you when when that comes through so we want to really start a global movement to start shifting this change. That's wonderful. So tell me finally, what surprised you or what have you learnt that you really didn't know from undertaking this huge project? I think for me, one of the key things was just how neglected death and dying has been from the broader discussions on health, broader discussions on how, you know, health and well-being, how to live well. And just of the importance of how you know how we live how we die how we grieve how we care they are a product of how we have lived these broader social and structural determinants and how death and dying has just been taken out of that and presumed to be managed by healthcare professionals when it's clearly such a socially determined event i just found really really surprising that essentially it just seems that there's been an entire blind spot towards this and looking at some really thoughtful, reflective work on um, well-being, health, and just having death and dying cut out of that. It just seems to make no sense to me. You know, death and and life are interconnected within a cycle. And so looking at the policy documents and research and thinking, I found that loss, that loss of that so shocking. And so a key aim was to bring that sense of coherence back that actually it's an integral part of life. And without it, life becomes kind of unbalanced, you know, without our recognition of that. So I think just seeing how far that had gone really surprised me and made me even more committed and, and sure that needed a shift. And did it shift any of your perceptions around life and death or reinforce them? It definitely, I mean, we had some very interesting and deep reflections around what actually matters and what actually how how would we really be able to shift things and the role of religion philosophy spirituality was huge in our discussions and that is something I think I'm a palliative care doctor so that's something I try to think about and integrate but I think it made me bring that much more into my life as a person but also into my practice as as a doctor and you know as a palliative care doctor I, I'd like to think I'd already considered that but actually I hadn't given it as much weight and I didn't have as much confidence I think probably in bringing those things in so it's shifted that for me in my practice definitely. Well it's been wonderful uh, speaking with you Dr Selno I really do appreciate your time it's a wonderful commission and uh, we'll have a link to that when we uh, go to air. So I hope many, many people read it because I think it's a really important document. So congratulations on the work. It's an enormous amount of work. And I really do wish you all the very best as you continue this work into the future. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share 
reflections and thoughts. I've really enjoyed it and I hope that it stimulates more reflections, thought and action for everyone listening. Indeed. (laughs) Thank you very, very much. It's good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.